Thanks for listening to the podcast from Old Town Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Old Town Church is passionate about making disciples for the glory of God in Old Town and around the world by inviting people to know the gospel, experience biblical community, and live on mission. If you're in the Rock Hill area, we invite you to join us for worship every Sunday. If you're not in our area, we encourage you to find a gospel-believing church near you. We hope this podcast is a blessing to you as we seek to follow Jesus and the grace of his gospel. Thanks for listening. Well, we, uh, just, just a, a reminder for us, when we say things like, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. One of the reasons that we do that is just to remind ourselves that it is God's word that we are reading in those moments. It's not the word of man. It's not the word of anyone else. Like it is God's actual word we are reading. And, and as a people, we are thankful for that word. And so when we say those things, I know every week we say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why do we do that? Well, it's just a, a, a rehearsing for us and remembering the goodness of God's word that, that we have. And so, uh, you know, I'm so thankful to be here with you this morning. Uh, my name is Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here at Old Town Church. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite holidays is coming up. It's not Christmas. It's not Thanksgiving. It's Halloween. And I'm just kidding. It's actually not one of my, it's one of my least favorite holidays. But I want to talk about Halloween for a second, just as a faith family. All right. Uh, we are not doing a trunk or treat. We are not doing a fall festival. Those things are fine and good, but we're not doing one of those. Uh, I, really what I want, and this is the heartbeat for us as a church, is that um, not that we won't do missional things together, uh, but really part of what we do is we gather together, we encourage one another, we equip one another in God's word, and then we go out into the community. Well, here's the beauty of Halloween. It is a day when everyone shuts down and, and they will let you come to their door and knock on it and it's not weird, all right? Uh, people will come up to your house and that's okay. And, and I know not all of us live in neighborhoods and maybe we can kind of connect with one another and, and try and hang out in that way, but this is what I wanna, I wanna pitch to us is Halloween is an opportunity for us to be missional in our communities. To, to rally together with friends who uh, might live in a neighborhood and say, hey, can I come trick-or-treat in your neighborhood? Or can I come help pass candy out so that you can walk around with your kid? Whatever the thing is, it's an opportunity for two things. One, for us to, to be together uh, with one another. Uh, secondarily, for us to be missional and intentional in the relationships we have in our communities. And so uh, we're going to just take that holiday and make it a time. Like, we get to spend time with people that day. And so give the best candy out in your neighborhood. Like, go for it. If you need to borrow, like, if you want to, uh, we have, like, coffee urns. Like, if you want to borrow them and make coffee and give it out to parents, um, you know, do that. Like, uh, whatever we can do to support you in being intentional with a day like that where people are just kind of randomly knocking on doors, let's go for it together. Right? So that's just an encouragement to you to, to leverage that day. Um, and uh, I know some of you are like, I am turning off all the lights and I'm turning off all my porch lights and I'm going to pretend like I'm not there. And I get that. And so maybe you just pray for everyone who knocks on your door that night. But anyhow, just want to just encourage us in that direction, all right, that we have an opportunity approaching us uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, so we are in uh, just this wonderful book in the scripture, like God's word is good. The book of Philippians is really good. And the passage we're in today is like, 
the height of all of that. Like when David was reading it, I wanted to just be like, amen, guys, let's just, we can worship after just reading this passage today. It's such a beautiful passage in scripture. And so uh, though we can't do justice to it in these next, you know, 35 or 40 minutes, uh, my hope for us is that we can just walk away with something in a, in a way that helps us better understand what's actually happening in this passage here in Philippians chapter two. And this is the big idea that I think is the big idea of the passage, but one I wanna present to us this morning, that we display the beauty of Christ by modeling his sacrificial humility in our relationships with one another. It's a long phrase, so I'm gonna say it again and take a picture of it if you want to. We, dis or you can write it down. We encourage that as well. Uh, we display the beauty of Christ, like we actually can be a display of Christ's beauty, of his goodness, by modeling his sacrificial humility in our relationships with one another. And, and the, the reason I, I, I want to make sure that we understand the passage that we're in today is part of a greater section of Scripture that ultimately is talking about how we advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way that we treat one another here within the church. That, that in the way that, that we seek to be united, in the way we seek to serve one another, in the way that we seek to live sacrificially with one another, that it's actually meant to be a display of Jesus Christ uh, to the world in a way that can advance the gospel. And so we've been the last couple of weeks talking about advancing the gospel and, and uh, as we endure attacks from the outside. And what Paul does this morning is he starts talking to the church in Philippi and saying, hey, uh, listen, those attacks from the outside are going to impact how you are on the inside. And so as a church, we need to remain and fight for unity within the church. And so that's where we're, we're going today. And so we'll begin uh, here just in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 2, verse 1. Um, oh, hold on. I'm in the wrong book. We're not teaching Galatians. Hold on. Give me just a second. Ephesians. God eats potato chips. Do you all know these? General Electric Power Company. Any other ones? Any other good ones? Gal God, wait, what? Gentiles eat pork chop, which, yeah, they do. Okay, so um, there's options. All I'm saying to get your Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, we can rally up together and share those with one another. Uh, after service, find someone and share your thing with them. Okay, talk amongst yourselves. All right, so um, here we go. Uh, here, here's, here's our first point as we look at the first four, four, four verses. Christian unity is developed through humble sacrifice and service to one another. Christian unity is developed through humble sacrifice and service to one another. I'm going to read these first four verses. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Uh, what Paul says at the beginning of, of verse one, he says, hey, if there is this, if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort in the love of God, if there is any participation in the spirit, he poses this like an if, hey, if this has happened, but the reality of it is he's really saying uh, that has happened. That has been your experience. He, he is urging them from a place of remembering their experience in Christ. You have been encouraged in Christ. 
You have been comforted by the love of God. You have participated in the Spirit. And I want to always draw focus to Paul's inclusion of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the, the Trinity, all that work together in the life of the believer. Paul is saying you have experienced those things. And so because you have experienced those things, and not only those things, but it says affection and sympathy. And, and he's, he's starting with our relationship with God and what we've experienced there. And then he transitions into our relationship with one another, the relationship with God being the foundation. And then that affection and sympathy that we have for one another or, or uh, affection, another word could be tenderness for one another or sympathy, another word could be compassion for one another. That, that these are experiences of the people of God because of the work that the Father, Son, and the Spirit has done in our lives. And so Paul is appealing to the unity of their relationship together to stand united. That was the charge he gave them at the end of chapter one, that you need to stand firm, united together. And so Paul's saying on that foundation of the work God has done, on that foundation of the, the work that's been done in your relationships with one another, you need to stand united. And, and he basically is, is saying, if you have experienced Christ, then your life should look like that. And we, we talked about that last week a little bit at the end of chapter one, that there is this, this reality that our lives are, are, are lived as worthy of the gospel, that there is a, a display of the work of Christ in our life because of what he's done in us. They match, that Christ has done a work. And so our lives look like Christ has done a work in us, not perfect, right? But because of the work he has done, that begins to come out of us. And one of the ways that it comes out of us is in our unity with one another. And so Paul charges them complete my joy by being of the same mind. So how, how do they complete Paul's joy? How do, they, how do they bring joy to him as he looks over this church that he is his minister to, this church that he has visited, this church that is supporting him, this church that from a prison cell he's writing to with great affection? How can they complete his joy? Well, it's by being of the same mind. And the truth is, like, if we all sat around right here, we couldn't even agree on God eats potato chips, right? So, like, if, 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 if we sat around, we all don't have the exact same mind. So the hope that, like, everyone who comes in maybe will just all have the same mind, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. We're different people, different experiences, different backgrounds, different, I mean, so many different things. And so this idea of, of being of the same mind is not hoping that you do have the same mind. It's a reality that we are to set our minds to the things that we are united in. And, and so that, that word for uh, when it says by being of the same mind, that word being is this word, and he'll use it a couple of times, set your mind to this. It's an active, intentional thing that you do. It's not just this thing you hope for. Oh, it's this thing that you go, no, no, no. I'm actually going to intentionally set my mind toward that thing. And, and the reality is that even in that, if we say, well, let's set our minds to the things that we're united in, we would still end up, what we'd end up with is clicks, right? Like, oh, you're united in, you're a Clemson football fan, or you're, a, I'm just looking around the room. I don't know why I always go to like teams, but like that divides us, right? Like Georgia football fan, Carolina, Clemson fan, whatever. You like music, you like movies, you like outdoors, you like indoors. You, you know, like if we set our minds to the things that unite us, uh, we'll end up in a bunch of different divisions, Right? What is the thing that does unite all of us? What's well, the gospel? It's the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so Paul is saying, you can be united of one mind in this one thing, which by the way, is the most important thing ever. 
It is the thing that your entire life revolves around. It should be. It's the thing that your entire life is tethered to. That is the thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the thing that unites all of us here within the church. And so it's not a call to think the same way about everything, but a call to unite about what is most important to us, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I, I want to just, if we can take a moment just as a faith family to say, hey, it's all right that we're different. In fact, actually, I think that's for us that we need to celebrate that. Because if we can actually celebrate our uniqueness, we can celebrate our, our differences and still unite in the gospel, that makes room for a lot of different people to come in here and be a part of our faith family. And so if we want to, I, people will sometimes say, I really, I want our church to grow diverse. Well, one of the way we do that is by being united in Christ and not dismissing people who aren't like us, right? So that's how as a faith family, we can grow more diverse. And the other way that I say often is like, how are you spending your Tuesdays? Because if we're only trying to be diverse on Sundays, but you don't want to live that way on Tuesday, it's not going to happen on a Sunday, right? So through the week, we live that way in a way that we are uniting with one another in Christ. And he says, having the same love, being in full accord and being of one mind. So there's this unity. And then he draws this contrast to it. He goes in verse three, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. All right, this sums up what Paul wants them to avoid, this idea of selfish amb ambition. And selfish ambition is the state of our fallenness, all right? That was the thing. I mean, if you go all the way back to the garden, the very first sin, that's what it was. It was selfish ambition. Satan was like, you can be like God. And Eve was like, oh. Adam was like, fine by me, right? Like that was at the very beginning, it was selfish ambition. It was this idea to have the same glory that God had. And so they took the fruit and they ate. That's the, state, that's the, the foundational state of our fallenness is the, this idea of, of selfish ambition, this, this pursuit of personal power or glory. What does selfish ambition look like in our lives maybe? I think it's a, a pursuit of things like personal comfort or uh, avoidance of sacrifice. We don't, we don't want to, you know, that's maybe that personal comfort thing. Like I want to pursue comfort. I want to avoid sacrifice. It's the idea of pursuing self-promotion or achievement, trophies, having more, producing more, being recognized as higher than others. This is selfish ambition. And the natural byproduct of that is rivalry. Because if I'm trying to have more or be praised, what I'm also needing is for you not to be, because I can't stand on the podium if you're on there with me, I don't stand out that way. And so if, if I'm seeking selfish ambition, uh, what ends up happening is I create a rivalry with others, right? I start to compete against others. And we do this. It's just part of our, we look at what someone else has and we want that. Or, or you know, we're, we're constantly in this realm of measuring ourselves up against others. This is where social media is crushing an entire generation of not just teenagers, <laughs> because for them it's image. But for others, it's possessions, right? You look, oh, look at their house. Look at their, man, they've got their chore chart. You know, as a, as a parent of young kids, you're like, man, they've really got their family all in order. They got the chores, they do allowance, and they do all the, you know, they do all this stuff. We're comparing ourselves constantly to others. And ultimately, that's coming from a place of wanting to prove ourselves, of wanting to be something, of wanting to produce. And so it's a type of measuring up against others. And he says, selfish ambition or conceit. And that word conceit is actually translated empty conceit, that it's vain. It's, it's, there's actually, it's hollow. There's nothing to it. Conceit is seeking glory for oneself, which ultimately would be empty because the only one who is worthy of that glory is Christ. 
And so I, I was reading a commentary, and I love this phrase. It's helped me understand that, that word conceit a little bit. It says, empty conceit is having the appearance but lacking the reality of glory. It's having the appearance of, of being glorified. It's having the appearance of being something, of having it together, of, of being someone that everyone can look up to, but actually lacking the reality of that glory in and of itself, because the only one who's worthy of that is Christ himself. And so in selfish ambition and vain conceit, we are pridefully seeking glory for ourselves. Again, these are things we don't say out loud. You don't go into your small group or sit down at the dinner table and say, I'm, you know, guys, I'm really working hard today to find glory for myself. No one says that. That's a weird thing to say. But if you examine your actions, if you begin to examine your thoughts, like what are you thinking about? If you examine what you scroll through on social media, if you examine the things that make you feel most insecure, what you'll find is the thing that you're probably pursuing to meet that insecurity. And at the end of it is that prideful, selfish ambition. And, and this will come out. I'm just going to give us another way you can see it in, in your life um, is a jealousy and a bitterness towards others. As you start comparing and you start seeing what others have, you start to grow jealous and, and bitter, maybe even spiteful when they have it. So instead of celebrating with someone in a moment of joy, uh, you actually, it kind of makes you upset when something good happens for somebody else. You grow bitter instead. It's that, or that resentful happiness. Um, you know, I saw Matt Chandler, who's a pastor, talked about this in this way. Uh, you know, you watch like America's Funniest Home Videos and like a guy gets kicked in the crotch and you're like, oh, that's hilarious. You know, like that part of you that celebrates the pain of others in like a, in a, in a much more uh, realistic way as you walk through life when someone gets that promotion at work or uh, students for you, like, you know that kid in your class, you know the one I'm talking about, so I don't even have to describe him to you. When they get like the good test score, you're like, oh God, they always... But when they get, they like get the 73, you're like, <laughs> you like almost celebrate like this evil maniacal laughter in your mind because you wouldn't do it out loud. Like, ah, that kid got what was coming to him, right? Like that's, that's what's in us is this jealousy, this bitterness that roots from comparing ourselves to others because as we're comparing ourselves to them, what we're actually seeking is our own glory and they're taking it from us. So Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's a self-centered approach to life. Paul is calling us to put our ambitions and our attempts at self-glorification to death. He's calling us to deny ourselves. Paul contrasts selfish ambition and conceit with humility. And, and so in, in verse, at the end of verse 3, he says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is a prerequisite for this type of a, a, an others-centered humility, all right? An others-centered unity. Like if we're gonna be unified in here as a church, it's gonna require this deep level of humility within each one of us. And that word humility really could be translated humility of mind. It's, it's this, this attitude, all right? This, this, this mindset that produces a behavior, that produces an action. Now, don't confuse humility with self-deprecation. All right, so when we think about humility, we think about going lower, all right? And what I want to do is make sure to call out like a false pride, all right? False humility, which is self-deprecation. I can talk extensively about this because it's what I do. This is, how, this is like something the Lord has revealed in me. Humility is not thinking lowly about yourself. Humility is not thinking negatively about yourself. Humility is not thinking you don't matter or that you don't have value. That's not humility because that's not actually true of you. Humility is really just not thinking of yourself at all. 
Humility is, is, is not thinking of yourself, but thinking of others. And so Paul's instruction to think of others before yourself. So think about it like this, like you're in line for food. Sometimes we have like potlucks here, all right? I'm not trying to actually call anybody out when I talk about this, all right? But we're in line for food, right? And um, humility isn't letting someone go in front of you because like, I don't deserve to eat, right? Like that would be like a false humility. That's a self, I don't, I don't, I don't even deserve to be in line, so I'll let this person go in front of me. It's letting someone go in front of you because you're thinking of them and not considering yourself. You're just saying, hey, no, I want you to actually go. So think of it like this. Humility is not putting ourselves down. It's just lifting others up, all right? And we can do that because of the value we have in Christ. So we can lift others up and not be threatened because we have value because Christ has given us that value. And so in verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. He says, each of you. And that applies to each of you, everyone in this room. So this is an all eyes on me moment. Every once in a while, I want everyone to look at me, not because I want the fame of it, but I just want to make sure you hear this. And students, this applies to you in a major way. Kids, this applies to you. Adults, everyone in this room, each of you, this applies to you. You have a role in this, in our faith family. You play a part in this. Don't think you don't have something to offer because you're eight. Don't think that you don't have something to offer because I'm just in middle school. One day I'll do that. Or don't think you have something to offer because I'm retired and I've, you know, whatever. It's like, no, every, each one of us, God has a plan to use each of you in this way. And so as each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul is, is telling us that we must not fix our eyes only on ourselves and miss those that are around us. And there's a reality. I actually love that he says, don't ever think about your own interests because that's not realistic. Like you got a reality that as we're sitting here today for the rest of the afternoon, you're like, I got to come up with a grocery list later on. I got to get, you know, figure out what I got to do laundry. I got to figure this out. I got this meeting. I've got a plan. I've got this. All of us have things we have to tend to. That's just life. All right. And so Paul doesn't say, never think about those things. No, that's not real. You, you, you do think about those things. This is reality that let each of you look not only to his own interests. He's not saying never to your own interests, but not only to your own, own interests, but to the interests of others. So this is what I want you to do. Practical exercise real quick. Take out a pen or you can like mentally write something down on your paper. So get a pen. If there's one on the chair, grab a piece of paper. I just want you to write down a couple of things on your to-do list this week. All right. Just jot them down just free flow. No one's going to quiz you on this. There's no test. And if it helps just to mentally make a, like a bullet point list, there's a couple of things you got going on this week. Maybe a couple of things that consume your thoughts even. A couple of things that consume your time. Assignments that are due chores that need to be done. I'm not trying to stress you out. All right, so this is what I want you to do. I just want you to look down at that. So even if you did it mentally, I want you to look down for a second as if you're looking at a piece of paper. As you're looking down at that piece of paper, so eyes down on your paper, looking at your to-do list, all right? As you do that, when you become so fixated on that, you're not looking around at others. All right, you've got your eyes down, fixated on your things, 
and you can't look at others. And so what Paul is saying is, as you think about that to-do list, everyone looks like they're praying, which is great. All right, but you can look up now. When, when we look down, when we become fixated at our own stuff, we miss seeing other people. And so Paul is saying, you do have those things, that's okay, but don't become so fixated on that that you're not eyes up looking around at the needs of others that you miss out an opportunity to serve someone else, that you miss a, an opportunity to see that someone's hurting, that you miss an opportunity to celebrate. Oh man, that's, I'm so glad that happened. I'm excited for you. Like, don't become so fixated on your own things that we miss one another. That's what Paul is calling us to here. Church, we are called to lay ourselves down for one another, specifically those in this faith family. We are called in humility to sacrifice and for and serve one another. And so we can do things uh, in this way, like serving in, in our OTC kids environment, even if we don't feel like it's our sweet spot, right? Like if I didn't preach every Sunday, it'd be something I would need to consider, but kids is not my sweet spot. You don't want me babysitting your baby because they'll be safe and well taken care of. They just won't have a good time with me likely. All right, now give me your 11 year old 15-year-old maybe, and, and we'll, we'll party. It'll be good, all right? Kids isn't my sweet spot. And, but within the faith family, maybe you say, it's not my sweet spot, but I know there's a need, and so I'm going to serve in that need. We, we do this through taking someone a meal when they're sick. I can't tell you the number of times when we've been sick or something's gone on in our life or there's been loss or there's been something and, and people bring us a meal. That's a, that's a really big deal. That's a way that we can uh, eyes up, kind of see what's going on and serve one another. Uh, maybe it's just in checking in on someone when you notice that they're missing. You know, I'll say this a thousand times over with our church. Like, there is nothing more meaningful than when someone texts you and says, hey, I missed you. I noticed you weren't there. I just want to say I missed you. You okay? Everything going all right? I mean, just a simple thing like that. We had a lot of people out last Sunday. I mean, just a ton of people traveling and stuff. We actually have another kind of grouping of people who are out this Sunday. Like, look around and say, who's not here? I want to reach out to someone and check in on them. Maybe it's someone in your small group, someone you serve with, or just someone that you normally see here that you notice aren't here. Check in on them. Shoot them a text. Give them a call. Uh, we do this through, through giving of our personal finances, all right? That, that as we give to the church, like the reason, and I don't know if y'all, I feel hot in here. I don't know if we've got the air just, the, the heat cranking up today, but like we get to turn the heat on because you give of your finances, that goes towards this building, it goes to so many ministries, it goes to missionaries across the, the world, it goes to support global missions efforts in the states and all over the globe. Like we give and it helps the mission of God's church, but this specific local family actually move forward, all right? And I know it's like, we don't talk much about giving here. So if this is your first time here, you're like, ah, oh, the pastor would talk about giving. Like we, don't, we really don't address this that often. But I do want to say that I actually think that's one of the ways that we sacrifice and serve one another best within the local church, one that I do believe that we're called to do. Sacrificially. One that we, we, we give up, maybe those, we could take an extra vacation if we didn't do that. But, but it's a way that we actually give to one another. And so I'm not trying to address just the biblically, you should give 10%. I'm not even talking about that today. I'm just saying that there is a realm in which we say with our time, with our talents, and with our our money, our resources that we give to this faith family to, to, to help grow in the health of this church. Listen, no one is flying private jets around here. So uh, up, up, at, up at this point, I think we're, we're being held accountable to the way that we're spending the money. But if I do get a private jet, you have the, the freedom to call me out on that. 
Um, but we serve one another by helping meet the financial needs of this faith family. And, and I get the pleasure of seeing where that, on a daily basis, how those budgeted dollars are spent. And it's, I mean, the ministry that is occurring through that is so encouraging, even just in the way that we're, we're like, we get to provide counseling resources to people. I mean, this is just one like small thing that gets to happen because you are generous with your finances. So that's one way we sacrifice one another. Another way we do this is by having people in our home or spending meaningful time with them, even when we don't know them well, in an effort to get to know them better. All right, I'm trying to give a lot of practical examples here that, that maybe there's one that the Lord leads you into. And it's not just spending time with those that are like-minded and easy to hang out with, uh, but maybe someone who's not like you at all. Maybe someone that you don't know well at all that, that you bring them in. And, and, and listen, real talk. What if, if one of our homeless brothers and sisters from our community or, or someone who is, is very different from us in our reality, uh, would we be willing to have them in our home for a meal? And if not, I would question why. What, why, what is it that would hold us back from welcoming someone who's part of our faith family? I'm not just talking about, you know, so, someone random. I'm talking about someone who's part of our faith family. Why would we not welcome them in in that way? Again, if we want to celebrate the uniqueness that each of us has, the different unique seasons of life. And there's a reality that there's going to be a sacrifice for us to pursue the unity that God is calling us to. It's not to shame us, but to encourage us that our unity is not rooted in our similar interests. Our unity is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these are just some practical ways. I'm spending a lot of our sermon time this morning on this one section of scripture because it's the, the thing that Paul is most calling us to. There are practical ways that each one of us can pursue a unity that's rooted in humility, ways that we can sacrifice and serve one another in an effort, and let's keep our, our eye on the prize here, to produce a unity in our faith family that displays the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the practical question is, what are you willing to sacrifice to pursue that kind of unity. Not just hope it happens, not just hope it comes to us, but actually pursue that unity in your everyday life. What might God be calling you to, I think is a valuable question for each of us to wrestle with. All right, we're gonna keep on going. Second point, Christian unity is modeled and made possible through Jesus. Christian unity is modeled and made possible only through Jesus. Look at verses five through eight. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we just talked about what Paul is calling us to pursue. We talked about a lot of practical ways that we can pursue that, but how do we find the strength to do that? How do we actually find a model that shows us what that can look like? Well, that is found in Christ alone. Uh, man, listen, as a believer, let's just praise Jesus right now that he does not call us to something that he doesn't model and equip us for. He is our great high priest who can, who can sympathize with everything that we are walking through. He has walked that road, but not only that, because of his spirit, he empowers us towards it. And so we can be thankful that as he calls us to pursue that unity, he's actually going to help us in 
that pursuit. And so in, in verse 5, Paul directs us now. He says, have this mind, this mind of Christ. Again, not an intellectual mind, not just a mind that believes a certain thing, but it believes it in such a way that it comes out of your life. It's an attitude that shapes behavior. And so what he does is he goes on to describe in the, in the preceding verses that we can find that attitude in Jesus Christ himself. And so look at this description of Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's take a minute and remember who Jesus was before he was like little baby Jesus in the manger. All right, because that's how like, that's our picture of Jesus, like Jesus on the earth, Jesus in the manger, Jesus on the cross, Jesus coming out of the tomb, right? Like that's the, but let's think about Jesus before those moments, the preexistent Jesus. This is what scripture tells us. He was there in the beginning. He has existed always. He has always been with God, his father. Colossians tells us that by Christ, through Jesus, all things were created and that in him, all things are held together. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And what we know is that he existed as a son. And I, I've, I've talked about this some. John 17 is a beautiful passage of scripture to read in this way, but he has always existed as a son who's delighting in the love of his father. Like Jesus for all time had just been a son whose father was lavishing love on him. And they enjoyed a deeply perfect and close relationship with one another. That's what Jesus was doing before he became sweet little eight pound baby Jesus, right? Who might wear tuxedo t-shirts? All right, sorry. And so, so to have always existed in the form of God, it's this clear declaration that Jesus has always been equal with God, that he is deity, that he is God almighty, the same glory as God the Father. And what it says is in all of that, he did not consider that a thing to be grasped. Now that grasp is not just like, yeah, you know, I kind of hold on to it like this. It's like grasped, right? Like clung on to, this thing that's held tightly to. It wasn't a thing that he, though he was equal with God, he did not grasp onto that. He did not hold on to that equality. Jesus was equal with the Father as the highest being in all of existence, and he did not hold tightly to that. Now, we would have, but Jesus did not. He did not consider that something to be held on to, but, in verse 7 it says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Think about the Jesus I just described a minute ago, preexistent creator, sustainer of all things, glory, of the Father, the delight of the Father on him always. And then hear these words, he emptied himself. Just let these, he, he emptied. Uh, that Jesus, that deity, that God, that perfection, it says he emptied himself. Christ the creator, sustainer of the universe, emptied himself. This is the opposite of selfish ambition. It's the exact opposite of it. Selfish ambition fills itself with accomplishments and achievements and glory. It pursues that at all costs. What a contrast, contrast with our own fleshly minds. Like think of the power that Jesus had. I mean, he speaks things into existence. Think of all, the, all that he had possession over, everything. 
In our flesh, we would hold tight to those things, things that give us power, things that give us possessions. We pursue that. But Jesus did not hold tightly to that. He emptied himself. Now, I want to be really clear about something. Jesus did not empty himself of glory. He did not become less God. This is important, all right? So Jesus wasn't God, a God of glory in heaven. And when he came to earth, he, he laid that glory aside, all right? He was still fully God in all of his glory, in all of his perfection, all of that. He was still all of that. And he didn't trade that out to become a human. The, the words that it actually says is he took on flesh. He added to that. He added to himself becoming a man, becoming a servant born in the likeness of men. He took on the form of a servant. And so whereas in heaven, his glory was on radiant display at all times, as he came to earth, it's just that his glory was not on its fullest display. He wasn't less glorious. It was just veiled for a time. He emptied himself of, of the privileges of the king of the universe for a time. He, he submitted to that. He subjected himself to that. Jesus was still fully God, but he was also fully man. And he did this for you and for me. And it says in, in verse eight, he humbled, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is our highest example of humility. This, this God who existed in heaven coming down, laying aside all of that, taking on the form of man. And so as we consider who Christ has been for eternity, it's only through his humility he was able to make himself low for us in that way. And it says by becoming obedient. I mean, think about like my kids, I have great kids, so this is not me knocking my kids at all. This is like children everywhere and adults still too, right? We don't like boundaries. I don't like someone telling me what to, even as I get older, I'm like, who are you to tell me what to do and what not to do? You know, I know what's best for me. I just don't choose it all the time, you know? So, so like in kids, they don't, they don't like boundaries. They don't like to be told what to do. Th think about what Jesus did. Like, first of all, in submission to his father, he came down. And he made himself obedient to the laws of man. Like he was, though he was fully God, he was still fully man. He was born as a baby. Like he pooped and he couldn't wipe it himself. All right. And I'm like, it's not funny, but it is. And it's not like, think of like the radiant glory of God Almighty is a baby who can't wipe his butt. Like this is, this is what he did for us. Like this is a massive a massive coming down to us, making himself obedient to the laws of this earth to a degree, all right, but also to the point of death. He submitted himself to death. He, he was willing. Jesus didn't just humble himself by becoming a man. He took it even further by allowing himself to die as a man. Jesus humbled himself and obeyed the will of his father at extreme cost to himself. This wasn't like an easy obedience. This was a costly obedience, a costly submission. It was a great sacrifice. God's love for you expresses itself in self-sacrifice. God sacrificed his son. His son sacrificed his life. 
Think of the great love that God has for you that he would be willing to do that. The son who left the joy and delight of his father was the son of the father who had to send his son to save us, to come down and pay the penalty that we deserved. He volunteered, Christ volunteered to do this. He chose to do this. He didn't have to endure any of what he experienced, but he knowingly, willingly endured all of it for your sake. This is great sacrifice. This is great humility. This is the Christ that we sing about. The Christ that at Christmas we're like, oh, he came. The word put on flesh. How beautiful. And this is what I want to encourage us with this morning, church. This Christ, if we go back to verse 5, when Paul says, have this mind of that Christ, these words are so important and we cannot miss them. Having this mind among yourselves, listen to these three words, which is yours. He's calling you to have the mind of that Jesus, that self-sacrificing, humble, and you're like, I can't do that. And he's like, you know what? In Christ, that mind is already yours. Through Christ, you can actually have that mind. It is yours. What powerful words. Not only did Jesus model pure humility for us, pure service, pure sacrifice, he made it possible for you to do that too. And so as you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I don't know if I got it, what it takes to do that. I would say in your flesh, you are totally right. But in Christ Jesus, you do. Sin no longer has power over you. That this mind is, is yours in Christ. It's something that you can walk in. Will you do it every day? No. Will you mess it up sometimes? Of course. Will you do things out of selfish ambition? Definitely. Remember, because we're, we're a work in progress. He's going to complete his work one day, but we're not there yet. But I, this is what I want to encourage you with. I want to encourage you with, though you're not there yet, if you are in Christ, sin no longer has power over you. And not only does sin no longer have power over you, the power of Christ is in you. And so you can have the mind of Christ because it's already there. And if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, helping you long for the things of Christ. And I'll say this, I, like one of my favorite prayers to pray is, Lord, help me. Like, help me believe this. Help me in my unbelief. I, wa I walk through these days, guys, I've got struggles against sin too, and I'm like, Lord, I, can, I cannot seem to overcome this. Will you please help me? And you know what? He's there. He is. Might be a long time. But he is there transforming us from the inside out. Praise him for that, church. And that's ultimately where all of that ends. It's in his praise and his glory. And so in the end, in the end, last point, in the end, Christ will be honored and God will be glorified. This point doesn't, sometimes I like my points like match each other. But this last point that Will's going to throw on the screen in just a second. In the end, Christ will be honored and God will be glorified. All right, look at verse 9 through 11. And let's just like, this is like a worship song, right? Actually, this whole section is, is a hymn. So, but therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, the hymn is Christ, the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, just quickly and simply here. In the end, Christ is honored and God is glorified. And that happens through our unity. But, but I just wanna, I, I wanna, I want us to see what's coming. You know, like if, if you have a test coming up, it's like, man, it would sure be nice to know what questions are on there and the answers that go with them. As you're saving for retirement, it sure would be nice to know if there's gonna be an economic collapse or this thing, like you would like to know those things. I can tell you something that's bankable right now. That in the end, this is what's going to happen. In light of all that Christ has done, God exalted Jesus. He, he lifted him up. He gave him the name that is above every name. And it's the name. Like I see athletes sometimes, like I am him. You know, like this is thing now. Like if you say I am him, you don't have to say like Joe Burrow said this and they mic'd it up and they're like, oh, Joe Burrow. He doesn't have to say I'm Joe Burrow. He's like, I am him. I am, I am better than everyone. I don't have to say my name because I am the name. That's Jesus' name. He is him. He is him. God has exalted him, given him the name that's above every name. And it says in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so, so every, every knee in heaven, and this isn't just those who are saved, this isn't the saints. This is angels and demons. Everyone in the heavenly realm. Every knee will bow in the heavenly realm. Angels and demons. That, that on earth, and this includes everyone who is currently on earth when Jesus returns. That every knee in heaven, angels and demons, every knee on earth that's alive at that time, and every knee under the earth, all those who have died previously before the coming of Jesus, those who are believers, those who are not, will be raised again for this moment of recognition. This, this moment of everyone coming together, and this includes you and me, this includes Hitler, this includes future president of the United States in 50 years, this includes every loved one you've ever had that's no longer with us, every loved one you currently have, my great, 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 great grandkids if the world lasts that long and I'm able to have grandkids. This includes all of them. That every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, verse 11, and every tongue, they don't just bow, they don't just get on their knees, but every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think about this. People you know right now who do not believe in Jesus, who are far from him, will one day acknowledge that he is the one true Lord. But it doesn't mean that they were saved before that moment came. The demons are going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. In fact, when you see him in scripture, they're like, we know who you are. The Bible says even the demons believe and shudder. Church, listen. The entire world, past, present, and future, is going to bow down on their knees and with their tongues confess that this Jesus we're talking about, the one who gave himself up for you, 
is Lord of all. He is the name above every name. And I think there's this reality that that can cause excitement and urgency in us. There's this like, whoa, man, this is going to be awesome. Because if you are in Christ, what a moment. It's just the beginning. Like it's the beginning of an eternity where we're like, oh, you, you're even better than I realized. This is, you are so much more glorious than I even knew. Like, and there's going to be this worship that just comes out of us. But let that also terrify us. For those that we know who do not know him right now. And there are some, some that reject him. They've heard of him and they reject him. And we just pray, Lord, would you save them? Would you draw them to yourself? Salvation is your work. Lord, would you do that? But there are others who do not know. And what we know is that the power is in the gospel. And so our joy and our delight in this recognizing that this moment is coming is that your neighbors and your coworkers and your brother and your sister and whoever else it is, they need to hear the gospel because they're going to realize one day that he is Lord. The question is, will they on this earth have an opportunity to respond to the truth of who he is before it's too late. Now our role, I wanna be clear, we can't save people. You don't have that power and praise God for that. But our role is to proclaim the truth of the gospel and there is power in the gospel and he draws to himself and he saves his own. And so church, this moment is coming. And so let the humility and the exaltation of Christ develop a deep sense of humility and worship in us this morning. And so I'll conclude here with our big idea. We display the beauty of Christ by modeling his sacrificial humility in our relationships with one another. Church, one of the ways that we declare the beauty of Christ, one of the ways that we display the gospel to the city of Rock Hill, to your coworkers, to your friends, to your neighbors, is by modeling the unity that he develops amongst his people. We gotta fight for it. We gotta fight for that. It's not easy. It is not easy, but it's something that we are called to pursue and we can because of what Christ has done. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, we come to you and we get to celebrate in the rest of our service. This, 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 uh, the rest of our service is a shadow of the moment we just talked about. That we, we get to celebrate in communion. We get to celebrate in worship. And it's, it's this, this expectation moment for us of what is coming one day. And so, Father, I pray in these moments that you guide us in the way we respond to your word this morning by your might and your power. Amen.